Amen. Thank you, Aaron and praise team. Appreciate you guys leading us this morning. A little uh, more modern songs today. Uh, we are a family of faith here, and in families, we don't always listen to the same music. My four-year-old son keeps telling Alexa to, I'm sorry if that just made your speaker go off at home. He keeps telling her to play Baby Shark over and over again, and so we have to mute it constantly because I don't like that song. If you don't like some of the music that you hear, I would ask that you show grace to those that do like that, and we try to um, cover the whole gamut because we are a family of faith, and Aaron and I both love the great hymns of our faith, and we also love more modern music as well, and we want our children to learn both. We want our church to uh, appreciate both and to sing both. The whole point is to engage your hearts in worship, so I hope you were able to do that today. I talked to one lady who said, I'm not coming to any in-person services because I want to sing out loud as I can. She's a doctor, and she said, I'm going to stay at home where I can not wear a mask and just sing my heart out at home, and I think that's great. Um, it's going to be a while before we can meet again in person, unfortunately. Uh, our <coughs> excuse me, um, the coronavirus advisory team has been saying that the, the data is not good right now, but we're going to continue to try to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves as we proceed with our plans. And how do we best use our resources to accomplish the mission of our church, to love the Lord our God with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to make disciples. So we feel like reaching out digitally uh, with all the different ways that we're doing communications right now is, is our strategy in order to engage our neighbors and the world. Today we're going to continue our, our sermon series called New Life, How the Spirit Makes People New from the Inside Out. And last week we saw how the Spirit was working on this guy named Saul, how the, the hound of heaven was after him and how he was being prepared to be used by God for an incredible ministry. Today we're going to look at a guy, a different guy, who the Spirit was also after, who the Spirit had been working on in order to prepare him to be used in a very different kind of way, and his name is Peter. I've said before how much I love Peter because I can relate to him in so many ways. Peter's a guy who's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's always, not yet, we'll go back, but I'll let you know. <laughs> He's always trying to, uh, you know, get out of the boat. When Jesus is out in the water, he says, I'm going to do that too. He has FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. I think Peter uh, is a seven on the Enneagram. If you're into that kind of thing, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I love on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John are there with Jesus and they see him in his glory and they see Moses and Elijah appear with him. And Peter says, tense, let's, Let's build tents, one for each of them. That'll be a great idea. And as he's talking, God literally interrupts him with this voice, booming voice, and says, this is my son with whom I well, well please listen to him. And then when, again, you know, when, when the risen Jesus is on the shore and Peter and his buddies are, are fishing, what does Peter do? He puts on his outer garment and he just can't wait. So he jumps again out of the boat and swims the short distance to shore in order to see Jesus. I love Peter because I can relate to him. If you are someone who's impulsive, if you're someone who finds yourself with your foot in your mouth often, then today I hope you can relate well to the story of Peter. Peter was different in a lot of ways than Saul. You know, Saul was educated in Jerusalem by one of the leading rabbis of all time, Gamaliel. 
Uh, it was a brilliant Pharisee, but Peter was a, a pretty low-class fisherman who obviously didn't get very far in Hebrew school because he was apprenticed out to his dad as a fisherman as well. But both Saul and Peter were gifted in unique ways and used by God to play their part in an amazing way as the gospel spread around the world. Peter had some growing up to do first, though. He still had some work being done on him by the Holy Spirit before he could engage in the ministry that God had called him to do. So today we're going to see how God brought a major attitude adjustment in Peter's life. You know, in my house, we have lots of, not yet, Will, just wait, buddy, I'll let you know. I know you're excited. <laughs> we have lots of attitude adjustments at my house with three small children, and it's not always our three kids that need those adjustments. Sometimes it's me and Morgan and our dog as well. An attitude is an indicator. It, it reveals our heart. An attitude is just kind of the outward expression of how our inward state is. And I often find that I need an adjustment in my own heart. Chuck Swindoll tells this great story of um, a famous violinist, an Italian guy from the early 1800s named Niccolo Paganini. He was a, a virtuoso. The story goes that he was standing in the midst of a packed house. He was surrounded by a full orchestra and he got to his favorite part uh, of the concert, a violin concerto that was particularly difficult and Shortly after he began, one of his strings snapped. And amazingly, brilliantly, due to his genius, he improvised and used the remaining three strings to finish the concerto. But before he could finish, another string snapped, and he was down to two, and everyone thought he would stop. But no, he just kept improvising and playing on the, the two strings. And then before he could finish again, a third string snapped. He was down to one string. Surely he couldn't continue, but he did. He made more music out of that one little string than most musicians could ever possibly imagine with a full set of four strings. His attitude made all the difference. He took what could be seen as a terrible situation and he turned it into a great triumph all because of his attitude towards that string. Swindoll goes on to say, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. It's more important than appearance giftedness, skill, it will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we embrace for that day. We can't change our past. We can't change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We can't change the inevitable like a coronavirus. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. Pretty wise words. So if you realize this morning that you are in need of an attitude adjustment, and I know I am after being uh, quarantined and seeing the numbers continue to rise, I know that I get cynical and, and bitter and upset in my own heart. So if you're like me and you know that you need an attitude adjustment today, I invite you to ask the Lord to come into your heart and to work on you just like he did with Peter. Peter wasn't cynical about being shut up in a pandemic, though. Peter's bad attitude came from the way that he looked down upon a certain group of people, people who were not Jewish, because they weren't God's chosen people, right? The, the Jews were set apart to be God's 
own possession, a special, holy, royal priesthood for himself. It was supposed to be his treasure among all the nations of the world. But this whole new covenant thing that Jesus Christ came to introduce was blowing all that up. He, he showed us by commissioning his disciples that we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and proclaim the gospel, the good news of, of what God is up to in the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue. The prophets told us this would happen. It's all there in, in the Old Testament that the nations would come to be included within the people of God. But Peter came from a strong tradition of prejudice and of arrogance, of, of thumbing their nose at those who were not Jewish, those who were outside of the covenant people of God. You know, in his day, Jewish midwives were forbidden to assist in the birth of a Gentile baby lest they aid and abet bringing more Gentile filth into this world. The, the rabbis said that if a woman was betrothed to a man and, and later found out that, that that man was a Gentile, that she could cut off the engagement with no penalties. So we're going to look at two key ways. Now, Will, we're going to look at two key ways that the Lord used in order to bring Peter's attitude into where he wanted it to be. The first one is through Peter's personal experience. I'm going to bring this a little closer to me. Nope, that's all it's got. I'm going to scoot a little closer to it. How's that? I, I got all thrown off playing bass today. That was fun. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for trusting me on that. Uh, I enjoy getting to participate in leading worship uh, to the throne. Peter's personal experience. The Lord uses our experience to adjust our hearts, right? The Lord gave Peter two amazing experiences in our text today that helped fix this attitude towards the nations. The, the first one is in Acts 9, 32 to 35. Read this with me. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Can I say first that Peter probably would never have had these experiences if he hadn't been going here and there. He got out. I know you long to get out right now in the midst of a quarantine. I know people who love to travel who can't travel right now. But the first step in having an experience is you have to go. You have to get out of your comfort zone. There he found a man in Lydda named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Not Peter heals you, but Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. If you have teenagers at home and, and you've said, rise and make your bed, you know it's a miracle when they actually obey. Immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Praise God, it's a revival breaking out. So Aeneas had a hard life. This guy had probably had some kind of accident, and he was paralyzed. He was a quadriplegic who'd been bedridden eight years. But he was a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, and he was part of this small group of believers that existed outside of Jerusalem. And through the prompting of the Spirit and by the grace of God, Peter speaks the healing of Jesus over Aeneas. And he tells him to put away his, his bedroll because he's not going to be needing it anymore. He's not going to be laying around all day. God's got a plan for his life. Now let's look at the next experience, Acts 9, 36 to 42. 
Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they hid her, and they had laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. That word for raised her up means resurrected her. The same word that was used of Jesus' own resurrection. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Praise God, it's another revival. Fantastic. These amazing experiences happen in these two towns of Lydda and Joppa. And Joppa was even more of a pagan Gentile city than Lydda was. It was a port city full of pirates and merchants from all over the world. Peter was probably uncomfortable being so far out of his Jewish comfort zone, his little bubble. But here he's gained a reputation in Lydda for bringing hope and healing to those people there. So he asked the Lord to do it again in Joppa. And the cool thing about this experience is that Peter had seen his master do the exact same thing back in Jerusalem with Jairus's daughter. Remember that? Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue and, and his daughter was ill and he asked Jesus to come and Jesus came. The daughter had already died and, and Jesus sent everyone out of the room just like Peter did and he, he prayed over her and, and then he said, Talitha kum, which in Aramaic means little girl, get up which the cool thing about what Peter says here, Tabitha kum, that's one letter different. The same thing, Tabitha, get up, little girl. It's the same thing Jesus said. He's doing the same thing he saw Jesus do. But now he's doing it in this pagan, sin-filled city. But revival breaks out in Joppa, just like it did in Lydda, when the people see what God is doing there. And Peter's starting to see, you know, maybe... God really does care about these people too. Maybe God really does desire to bring them into his own family. You know, these revivals that are breaking out are showing Peter God's heart for the nations. And then look at verse 43. And all the, verse 43, sorry, do we have 43? He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Do you know what a tanner is? A tanner is somebody who uh, kills large animals and skins them and then uh, treats those leathers for leather working, all those skins to be used in leather goods. It was not a good place to be in, a tanner's home. It smelled terrible. Tanners were required to live outside of the city. That's why he lives near the sea here. And the, the place of business of a tanner was disgusting. But clearly Peter needed a little cross-cultural immersion. When I was getting my Master's of Divinity in seminary, we were required to do a two-week cross-cultural immersion. We had to work in a, a context, an environment that was different than the one that we had grown up in or experienced before. 
I'll never forget uh, my cross-cultural immersion was at Metro Baptist Church in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, Manhattan. It was right across the street from the Port Authority, the largest, uh, busiest bus terminal in the world, and uh, constant people coming and going every day outside our church. And uh, we did a kids camp for underprivileged kids in the city. And uh, I tried to wrangle 20 children on and off of subways as we were navigating our way uptown to the Natural Museum, uh, the Museum of Natural History. It was an incredible experience and it shaped the way I view cities. It shaped the way I view buses. It shaped the way I see Metro Baptist Church because I had this immersive and uh, this immersive experience in that context, it changed my attitude, my preconceived notions about New York City, my biases against the city, my ignorance. It was all exposed and transformed as my attitude changed. Experiences can absolutely adjust our attitudes if we'll be open to what the Lord wants to do through them. But even greater than Peter's experiences was his personal revelation. That's the second point. God changes our attitudes through experience, but he also changes it through the revelation that he gives us through his word, through dreams, through visions, that kind of thing. Look at Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God, to Yahweh. Cornelius was a a Roman, a pagan. Of course, he was familiar with all the the Roman pantheon of pagan gods, but apparently he'd given up on them. It was shown that they couldn't do anything for him. They didn't make any difference in his life. So he instead heard about this Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Jews. And he began to pray to him and, and give alms to support the Jewish people and seek after this one true God. It's an amazing experience as a a God follower. Then look at verse three. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. He's a good soldier. He obeys the angel of the Lord. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he's going uh, to follow what the Lord has told him to do. Verse nine, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He's probably getting away from all those animal smells. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat once he's away from those gross smells. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. This is an amazing thing. Peter goes up on the roof and looks out over the Mediterranean Sea. He gets hungry. While they're fixing food, he he falls into a trance. Have you ever looked out over the ocean, looked out over a big body of water and wondered who lives on the other side. Who is it that's out there across that sea? I wonder if Peter was thinking, what, what kind of nations, what kind of peoples, what kind of God's children are across the sea that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? I wonder if that's what he was thinking. 
So he's, he has this trance, and let's see what he says in verse 11. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. You know, Jewish food laws as prescribed in the Old Testament had really defined God's people for thousands of years by this point. Jews were known in the ancient Near East as those people that do not eat pork, you know, because of the, the cloven hoof, the split hoof. There's all these laws in the Torah that commanded them what to eat, what not to eat. And it really served to set God's people apart as holy unto him. Some Jews today still follow these kosher laws. Uh, the reformed Jews do not. My friend Rabbi Flip from Congregation Micah told me about a tradition where the graduating class from his reformed Jewish seminary uh, to celebrate their graduation, they have what's called a treif feast, a treif banquet. Treif is the Hebrew word for food that is not kosher. And they would eat lobster and shrimp and dishes that combine meat with dairy. That's a big no-no in the, the Hebrew kosher laws. I think it's just a way for them to kind of cut loose and celebrate their lack of legalism or strict detail or something. But it's a deep-seated issue for a lot of Jewish people even to this day, this idea of clean things and unclean things. And this sheet in Peter's vision is, is coming down by its four corners. And anytime you see the number four in the Bible, usually that represents the whole earth because it has the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. It covers the entire world. This, this sheet has a global, all-encompassing perspective that's presented to Peter. And he just looks at it and goes, oh, gross. That stuff's terrible because God hates it, right? No, God so loved the world. God is adjusting Peter's attitude here. He's showing him through revelation that ethnic snobbery has no place in the kingdom of God. He's helping Peter to, his expand, to expand his idea of what and who God loves. God loves these animals. He loves the strong oxen and the innocent lambs and the beautiful doves that Peter knows are acceptable and pleasing gifts to God according to the law. But God also loves the platypus and the iguana and the centipede. When uh, the pastor of Moody Bible Church, Dr. H.A. Ironside, was doing his, his dad's funeral, he was speaking about this passage. And he was overcome with emotion. And, and when he was talking about it, he couldn't get the words out. And he stumbled. He said, there was a sheet with wild beast. And, and, uh, and, and, and finally, his buddy leaned over and said, it says creeping things. And he said, ah, yes, that's how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing but I got in. How does this apply to us? Well, let me ask you this. Who or what would be on your sheet of scorn? Who is it that you look at with contempt or revision or disgust? Our sheets are filled with people that don't vote the way that we do. 
Our, my sheet of scorn has people on it, I know, that, that don't think the same way I do about God. Drives me crazy. It probably includes people who don't agree with me about a lot of things because I have some strong opinions. We all look at our own sheets of scorn and say, oh, gross. By no means, Lord, they're not my kind of people. Kent Hughes points out in his commentary how the result is a Christianity that grows solely on homogenous lines. You think about all the divisions in our nation today. They exist in church as well. We seek out people that are like us, people that we'd like to have in our church. The sad thing is that we know God. We know his son. We know his word, and yet we still act this way. Peter was praying to God as he received this vision. He had a beautiful attitude towards God, but a terrible attitude towards the world that God made. The goal is to see the world as God sees it, to have the same heart, to have the same attitude as God does towards the world and towards other people. So Peter's at a crisis moment, but he comes through it beautifully. His kind of worldview has been challenged. Let's see how he responds in verse 17. While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. These strange dudes from Rome show up, pagan guys. What is Peter going to do? And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Peter invites them in to be his guest. These strange pagan dudes who show up at the door of really the guy that he's staying with, he invites them in to be his own special honored guest. It's a good thing. Normally Peter would have snubbed his nose at him. I don't want anything to do with you guys. You're outside the covenant slam the door in their faces. But the Spirit's working on his heart, so he brings them in with the honor of a guest. What's our attitude toward the people that we encounter on a daily basis? Maybe they wear a mask, maybe they don't wear a mask. How do we treat them? How do we look at them? How do we judge them? I had a friend in seminary who often said, I believe all our global issues could just be solved if we could all learn to see one another as divine image bearers, that every single person we encounter bears the divine image of God into this world that desperately needs him. Therefore, they, they have inherent worth and value and dignity and should be treated thusly. <coughs> C.S. Lewis said, uh, next to the blessed sacrament, the table and the word, next to that, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Your neighbor is holy. They're special to the Lord. They're set apart to the Lord 
and they are there to, to show you God's will for your life. Peter's attitude changed drastically due to the personal experiences he'd had in these pagan towns and also to this personal revelation he'd received in Joppa. Yet he still had some slip-ups, as we're going to see in a few weeks at Antioch. But we know that Peter, when he died, he died in Rome, which was the center of Gentile power. It, was the, it represented everything outside of the Jewish nation, and that's where Peter lived. In fact, he never again would shelter among his people, the Jews. He would travel as an itinerant missionary bringing the gospel to the world. So what if you and I tried a little experiment today? What if during lunch we took out a four-cornered napkin and laid it on the table and took a pen and wrote down the names of people that we dislike, people that we despise, people who we do not and cannot and will not love? What if we got real honest with God and said, by no means, Lord, I can't say anything good about any of these people. I don't want good things for these people. I can't do it and I'm not gonna try, God. The Lord would come to us, I believe, and do a surgical work on our hearts as we ask him to help us to have the same attitude that he has towards all people. If we're gonna fulfill our mission to love our neighbors as ourselves and to bring them hope and healing, the first thing we have to do is see them as God sees them, as potential heirs of grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have to lay down the hate, lay down the prejudice, lay down the bias, and let the Lord do a surgical work to adjust our attitude today so that we can love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you give us these experiences that teach us who you are and what your heart is towards the nations and towards our neighbors. God, forgive us for, for continuing to carry so many biases that we don't even know about, that we don't even see. God, I pray that you would unite us both as Christians and as human beings, that your church would rise up and model unity for the world, that we would truly love our neighbors. Help us to love the unlovable, Help us to love those that drive us crazy because by grace, when we were still sinners, when we were still in full rebellion against you, you came after us and you brought us into your family, adopting us, paying the price that only you could pay in order to make us right with you both now and forever. God, help us to show that grace to others. We can only do it by your power, by your grace and by your spirit. We pray this all in the high and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We do need the Lord. We all need the Lord. We can't manage our sin. We can't manage our biases. We can't manage our prejudice on our own. Only the Holy Spirit working in our hearts can really adjust our attitudes. So we're gonna sing this song as a response. Lord, I need you. Come and change me, God. I can't do it on my own. I know I need you. I invite you to sing this song just from your heart. And if you need to call someone right now and, and surrender to Jesus Christ for the very first time, call 615-297-5303. Talk to someone here. The number is on the screen. It's on our website. Go to woodmontbaptist.com if you want to be a part of what God's doing here. We're going to present someone on Wednesday night as a member of our church. 
and who's joining the church during a quarantine. You can do that. Whatever it is that you need to do in this time, don't miss this opportunity to respond to the Holy Spirit today. Let's sing.